listening to Carnivore Conversations, a podcast exploring the benefits of keto, carnivore, intermittent feasting, and other lifestyle hacks. Each week, we'll be interviewing a special guest from the keto carnivore community and so much more. This is your host, board-certified and practicing physician, Dr. Robert Kiltz. Dr. Rob Kiltz, uh, welcoming Dr. Sean Baker, uh, someone I've been following for a long time in the carnivore space and one of the first carnivore books that I've read and uh, been on this journey also in the uh, world of health and wellness. So welcome, Sean. How are you doing today? I am doing nice. I'm doing well. I'm usually, usually pretty good. I'm generally a pretty happy and you know, generally happy person. Life is good. <laughs> I, I can see that. That's what's such inspiring about what you're doing. Uh, little tell, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, where you uh, hailing from and uh, uh, what got you into this crazy space? Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, I, you know, if you had asked me 10 years ago, if, if I, if, if you would have predicted where I was going to be, there's no way in hell I'd have said I'm some crazy carnivore doctor, you know, doing all, all the stuff I'm doing these days, but you know, it's life is very unpredictable. Uh, so I'm, you know, cl I'm classically trained as an orthopedic surgeon. I did kind of the, the standard, I actually wasn't really that standard. I started in medical school back in the 1980s and started and I ended up leaving to go play professional rugby. So I left to go to New Zealand in the, right after my first year of medical school. And then I did that, floated around and joined the military, launched nuclear bombs. Decided when I was about 30, when I got tired of getting kicked in the head too much, maybe that's what's wrong with me. <laughs> <On the road. laughs> I went back to medical school, you know, got, got into orthopedics and, and then did that. And then I was a military guy, the military paid for that. And so I ended up doing some military time, did a little bit of time deployed over in, you know, trauma zones like Afghanistan, went into private, you know, I was employed, but, you know, basically private practice type of situation, headed a group and did that for quite a while. And then I started to really start to look, well, really what caused me to is my own health was starting to suffer a little bit. And I think really most physicians don't think about it until it affects them personally. It's kind of sad to think about it, but that's really the impetus for most of us. And so as I got into my mid forties, I started to see, Hey man, I'm kind of, I'm not, you know, feeling as good. I'm not sleeping well. My blood pressure's up a little bit. I'm probably pre-diabetic and metabolic syndrome and all that stuff. And so I, I said, this is this, I just not going to accept this. And so I started, you know, saying, okay, I'm already working out like a maniac. I'm already like a world-class, you know, world champion athlete. I'm training as hard as I can. I'm also being, you know, a dad and an orthopedic surgeon, so busy as can be. So the only thing I had left was really at this point, I think was nutrition, which I hadn't really, I mean, I wasn't ever eating like a junk food diet, but I was, you know, wasn't really zeroed in on my nutrition. And so I went through what I, what most people do is I went on a low fat, low calorie lots of vegetables and lean protein diet and I lost weight. I mean, it worked. I mean, and, and I don't deny that that works, but I was a, literally a miserable person and everybody that was around me was not, you know, they were like, we much prefer the jovial, the jovial diet, you know, <laughs> the implication we like you fat, dumb and happy instead. But um, so, I mean, I've realized that wasn't sustainable. I could not continue in this, this, this sort of what I felt was cardboard, you know, not enough dietary fat uh, sort of diet. And so I, I started playing when I'm a paleo diet then a low carb, then eventually a ketogenic diet. That took me about five or six years. Uh, then I discovered these crazy, nutty, wacky, weird people eating all meat, you know, online. I said, these people are nuts, right? I mean, that's, that's everybody's impression. And I was, but I was just kind of curious enough to just kind of read more. I was just intrigued. It was like watching a, you know, like a horror movie. I was like, what the hell is going to happen next? And I was like, wait, something's starting to make sense to me, whatever, in whatever reason my mind it made sense. I went and tried it and I, you know, I was like, I'm just going to do it for a day. And I did it for one day. I had steak and eggs all day. And I was like, yeah, I felt pretty good. I like the food. And then that led to like two days in a week. And then finally I did it for a month. 
and I was starting to get a little bit of an online, you know, presence a little bit, I think on Twitter back then, a couple thousand people. I said, Hey, I'm going to do this for 30 days. What am I going to die of? Cause clearly I'm going to die. I mean, no, we could survive eating just meat for 30 days. Right. And it was, well, you're going to have a heart attack. Uh, you're going to get scurvy. Uh, your colon is going to fall out from lack of, you know, fiber. Cause the, the, the microbiome is going to eat your colon because you don't have fiber in there. Right. And of course, none of those things happened. And I felt like literally, I was like, man, I feel like 10, 15 years younger. Nothing hurts. I've had, you know, these chronic aches and pains that you get as an athlete. Yeah. You know, and I've, and I've, I've been, you know, rugby, Highland games, uh, you know, powerlifting, all these things that are pretty, can be tough on the body. And I mean, those things just went away. And I was like, man, I feel literally like I'm in my twenties or early thirties again. So I, I, you know, I did it for, I did it for a month and then it was like, okay, I, that's just an experiment. Let me go back to kind of a more normal diet. And, and I mean, literally 24 hours of the normal diet. I just felt like I was my, my age again. I was like, okay, I'm, I'm back to being 50 again. <laughs> I was like, this isn't good. So I went back to the all meat thing and I've literally been on it for now, almost six years now. So that's kind of my, the, the genesis of where I am now. And, and what inspired you to write the book and, and really jump all into this? Because obviously uh, your online presence, your book, and, and it's, it's carnivore is, is your rear focus. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it was kind of interesting. I had no, and again, I never would have thought I would written a book or been an author. I I don't even like writing. You know, I can barely speak English. I think sometimes (laughs) no, but I mean, the publisher literally approached me. They they literally said, Hey, can we talk to you? There's a, there seems to be a growing interest in this carnivore diet, this meat only diet. It wasn't called the carnivore diet then. And I, they said, can you write a book about this? Cause you're kind of one of these vocal proponents and you got an MD behind your name. I said, Okay, I'll do it. And so I, I, you know, I spent a couple months and went back and forth with it with the editor and I wrote it. I named it the carnivore diet. It wasn't previously it was called the zero zero carb diet, which was mm-hmm. kind of confusing for a lot of people because it was like, well, zero carb, could I can I have diet coke? Can I have Mazzola oil? Can I eat, you know, I mean it was just all this stuff that really wasn't the the essence of what we were trying to convey. It was like, you know, this is animal products. And so I came up with the name the carnivore diet, you know, and then obviously after that it kind of got I got on Rogan's podcast and then it was just kind of all hell broke loose after that um but yeah i mean i what inspired me then and what inspires me now is honestly i'm a physician i want to see people get healthier and i think that's why we get into this and then we kind of get sucked into the system and so many people are just they just get beat down by the grind by the this is the way it is this is the way you got to deal insurance company this is a coding this is a billing and you got 15 minutes and you know, you got these algorithms you need to follow. And if you want to get your attaboy, you need to make sure 80% of your patients are on this drug or that drug for this condition. It just, you know, it, it's just a, a tough environment to be. And I don't, like I said, I think I, I'm very critical of the medical system and I think rightfully so, but I think there's many, many, most people in there are good people. It's just a system. It's, it's just not, it's not serving the purpose it should be serving quite honestly. Uh, are you still in practice of standard medicine? Or are you primarily focusing on Rivera Health? And you could tell us more about that. Also. Right. So I, I have an active medical license. I keep that active just in case, but I don't, I, honestly, I probably won't. I haven't operated since 2015. I mean, I, you know, I, I started focusing on this and lifestyle. I still see people in a, in a sort of a lifestyle consultation capacity. So I still have direct interaction with people and, you know, I don't prescribe or deprescribe or diagnose any of the medical things, but we talk about lifestyle and how to get people fit and healthier and those things. Uh, and so I still enjoy that aspect of it, but yes, my full focus is developing this company, you know, further We we just went through our first initial fundraising round. We raised a nice amount of money. And so now we're going to be able to sort of bring this to a larger scale of people. And, you know, our goal, like I said, our goal 
you know, our entire reason for being is to get people off meds, reverse diseases, cure disease, if you can even call it that. I know it's kind of a, it's like you're, you're shame for saying you're trying to cure a disease because it doesn't exist, right, anymore. We're so used to the medical uh, disease maintenance paradigm. We're just going to maintain you and, and manage your sit, sit, uh, symptoms. And it really is it's not even a disease. It was, you know, they started calling it disease management. You probably remember <laughs> that. And I think it's just disease maintenance. You just main, maintain people in a state of disease and play with their symptoms a little bit. And I think that's where we're at. And that's not where I think we want to go. And I think most people don't want to be there. And, and so uh, what type of, uh, uh, in, in the medical field, and I'm sure you work a little bit in it and, and, and see docs and talk to docs or patients, what type of pushback are you getting on this stuff? By and large, uh, I think the most people that, that interact, I mean, the, you know, the deign to interact with me has been pretty positive. I mean, yeah, there's people that from, you know, on the side will say, well, this guy's a moron or this is stupid or I don't like meat or, you know, I mean, there's obviously people that are biased that think eating meat particularly is just so bad for us. And, you know, it's like instant death if you eat, you know, more than three ounces a day or something like that. So there's some of that. And there's some people that don't understand it. And there's some people that I think are just confused a lot of like, I, this doesn't match what I've been trained. And yet I'm seeing, you know, a constant barrage of people that are literally coming off medications and, and you, you can't deny the objective. I mean, this person was now, is now hundred percent, hundred pounds lighter than they were. They're no longer on all these medications. You've got objective evidence that their colonoscopy shows they used to have Crohn's disease and it's gone, or their ulcerative colitis is gone, or they're in your more in your field, there's PCOS and their cysts are gone. You know, all these things, it's just like, how do you, how do you process that when everything you've been taught is the opposite, you know? And so uh, there is some, but I think we're seeing more and more like, like yourself. I mean, there's more and more physicians out there, that are saying, okay, wait, I'm just going to, you know, do what works and, and listen to my patient, you know, cause we talk about evidence and what's the strength of evidence. Well, patient results are evidence in my view. I mean, they really are. And, and to say that you need an RCT, it's not that we don't need to and shouldn't do those things, but to say, I need to wait for all the evidence or the ideal study to be done before I, I do something that I think is going to benefit my patient. That's the art of medicine. And I think, you know, when we talk about, you know, there's, there's, there's evidence, which, I mean, gosh, you know, you look at how the, the evidence is acquired, you know, some of the funding is goofy and where they, the data is being hidden and the negative results are not being published. You know, this is, you know, kind of a knock on the pharmaceutical industry, but then there's, you know, you take it, you know, the, cl the clinician's experience that counts for something. And honestly, it counts for quite a, quite a lot. And if we ask patients what's important to them, I don't think they could care less what their numbers are. They just want to be healthy and feel good and not be burdened with disease and not be in pain and not be sad and depressed and, you know, hurt every time they walk across the room. I mean, so I think it's, you know, we have to align the goals of everybody and put them where I think the patient has to come first in this regard. Well, I'm really excited uh, that you're here talking to us today because having more uh, clinicians and people that are really inspired, but that actually have done it themselves is so important. And I had dinner with three doctors last night and uh, one of them, uh, we talked about this and I eat my steak and this is pretty much <laughs> butter and salt. And, you know, one guy's like, what are you doing? And, um, and, and the science just doesn't back it up is the biggest problem in our medical field, right? We're looking for the scientific studies that prove it. And, and yet, um, you know, the proof be how you feel and how your clients feel uh, after experiencing uh, carnivore. Uh, what's your thoughts and how do you talk to people about keto versus carnivore? 
uh, and and the nuances of those sort of things. Yeah, I mean, well, there's there's obviously some distinctions there. And just to be clear, I don't necessarily think everybody needs to be on a carnivore diet. I don't know if it's even the best diet for every single person, but I do know that it can be extremely effective for many people, and it's worth trying for for many conditions. And so keto, you know, keto obviously in the name, in, you know, sort of uh, sort of, uh, indicates that you're going to be in ketosis, right? So ketosis is when, you know, you start, you know, you, you reach a certain threshold. If you listen to Jeff Olick, Stephen Finney's definition, you know, 0.5 millimolar ketones in your, in your, in your blood. And, and, and you want to be in that position because that means you've kind of shifted the, the balance a little bit more towards, uh, fat lipolysis rather than so much glycolysis. And so there's this, there's this sort of, I'm going to eat things that cause that to happen for me to be in ketosis. And some of the side effects might be my, my hemoglobin A1C gets better. My glucose is stable. I might lose some weight. I might feel better. And certainly people do. And there's a lot of research on keto now showing all kinds of beneficial effects for all kinds of diseases. I mean, I know there's studies on Chris Palmer at Harvard doing some great work around mental health stuff. I mean, there's stuff, uh, guys like Dale Bredesen and UCSF looking at uh, Alzheimer's disease. And we, we just see a lot of, a lot of now research coming out there. Dom D'Agostino has done a lot of great work. Um, but I think with a carnivore diet, you certainly can do it in a ketogenic style. And there's people who call it ketovore, you know, keto animal foods or paleolithic ketogenic. I mean, there's all kinds of versions on that. And I think that can often be beneficial. I don't personally, in my own life, I don't really worry about it, whether I'm in ketosis or not. My, my, you know, I look at like, what's the, what is my ultimate goal? Here? Mm -hmm. And if my goal is I want my ketones to be 2.0, I mean, that's great, but is it, does it mean I'm healthier or not? And I don't know. I mean, it could be, it may not be, and it may be correlated or it may be loosely correlated. So I look at a carnivore diet or really, and again, if you're not getting results on a carnivore diet, don't do it. I mean, and I, it's not like it's, it's not like a, an ideology, sort of like a vegan diet. It's not reverse veganism. It's just like, this is something that works really well for, for health, for certain conditions, for certain people. And if you're not getting those results, please, by all means do something different. But I think, you know, the goal is, Hey, let's get healthy. Let's get uh, you know, if you look at what a carnivore diet is, it's an, you know, it's an animal based diet. There's no processed food in there, but pretty much by definition with a ketogenic diet, you know, you can, you can walk through any grocery store and see keto junk food everywhere. It's keto on this keto, keto crumbles and keto bites and keto, you know, everything's got keto on it. And you look at the ingredients, it's just a bunch of garbage, right? You don't really see that with carnivore. There's some people that kind of, kind of trying to, you know, call it jerky carnivore and it's all got you know some junk in there, but um, so, I mean, there's that, I mean, there's no, no real processed garbage. And I think really, if we look at why we have a situation like we do, it is the immense amount of ultra processed food that we eat as Americans and Western Westerners. I mean, it's 60% of our diet largely. So you eliminate all that, first of all, and then you're providing high quality protein and animal source protein is clearly better than plant protein. I know there's people that push back on that, but I mean, at the end of the day, the, the overwhelming evidence, you can look at the PD cash, you can look at the diet, when you look at the digestible indices of all these Plant versus animal proteins. Plant plant proteins are always inferior in just about every study you've ever looked at. You know, you can kind of construct something using isolates, and if you balance everything, you can get a you can get a similar muscle muscle protein synthesis. But then you don't even consider cholesterol. Cholesterol is anabolic, and so uh -huh. again, my uh, my sort of belief is that lean mass is is beneficial to our health. You know, I mean, you don't have to be a giant super muscular guy, but you need to have a decent amount of muscle. I think just as as concerning as obesity is. The other side of the spectrum, frailty and sarcopenia are also there. And, you know, particularly with women, particularly with older women, you know, that's a real issue. And, and I think, you know, uh, an, an animal-based diet that's higher in protein, that completely eliminates the junk food, that's highly bioavailable, you know, is, is, a, is a good answer for a lot of people.
Well, it's interesting. I've always, uh, it, to me, it's the plants that are the poison. And, and you, you know a lot about the, the uh, plant phytochemicals and, and the antigens and even the microbes that come with the plants. Uh, and, and maybe you could talk a little bit about um, fiber and, and is it good and bad and, and, and why? I think it's a, I think it's a question. I think that it's it's a relative framework where you start at. I think if you're looking at the average American eating the standard ultra processed junk food diet, the addition to fi fiber in the diet is generally going to improve the qual overall quality of the diet. And there's some studies that will suggest that fiber intake is associated with socioeconomic status. And we always know that people that have more means tend to do better on all health outcomes. That's that's pretty clear. And people that are eating fruits and vegetables you know, tend to uh, have a better socioeconomic picture than people that just have to survive on this ultra processed stuff. And so you think about what are the, what are the proposed mechanisms by which fiber improves things? Well, glycemic variability, it seems to be like you're eating an, the classic example is an apple versus apple juice. You know, they've done isocaloric uh, examples, you know, with, with, you know, 50 grams of carbs from juice and 50 grams of carbs from apples. The glycemic excursion is much lower with 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 the with the fiber in there, so that's a benefit. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you can talk about uh, uh, things like well, the biggest thing now is microbiome. You know, everybody's talking about well, you have to have fiber to feed these gut bacteria, which then produces short chain fatty acid, primarily butyrate, which will then nourish the colonic lining and protect it from, you know, whatever, whatever, whatever they want to say it protects from. And so all those things, you know, like you know, for instance. Uh, we talked about, and the other thing was satiety. You know, if you, if you just fill your guts up with a bunch of fiber, like a gorilla, you know, gorillas eat 75 pounds a day, by the way, and they spent 80, they spent 80% of their waking hours chewing and defecating. So, I mean, yeah, so you can use that strategy where you fill yourself up and that provides a satiety effect. And so there may be some weight loss associated with, uh, there's a slight benefit cholesterol. If, if it lowers your cholesterol, I think that's debatable whether that's good or bad uh, in my view anyway. Um, and so all those things, you look at all those things. Well, I mean, first of all, you know, when you're eating a, a carbohydrate free diet, the glucose excursion generally is not an issue because you've got fairly low, you know, unless you're just eating pure protein, you might see a little bigger spike, particularly if you're a diabetic. But so you have, so that, that effect is kind of basically neutralized. Uh, the satiety effect, I think eating for most people eating, you know, an animal based diet is very satiating for most people, not everybody for most people. So the satiating effect of fiber is kind of mitigated there. I think the other big one is the butyrate. And so if we look at, if you look at butyrate, there's something called beta hydroxybutyrate, which I'm sure you're familiar with, which is, you know, the primary ketone body that circulates. And beta hydroxybutyrate is one, literally one hydroxyl, you know, molecule away, an OH molecule away. And it's very easily interconverted. And so when you're, when you're on a lower carb diet, your ketones are going to be going up to some degree. And your, those colonic mucosal cells are well and well vascularized. And so they are still being bathed in butyrate, regardless if you're getting ex ex exogenously through the microbiome or internally through uh, the beta hydroxybutyrate. And additionally, you know, we know that things like protein breakdown into uh, uh, the short chain fatty acids as well. There's uh, methyl butyrate, there's propionic acid, there's acetate uh, and, and several others in there. So I, I think all the effects, the beneficial effects of fiber are really relative to a junk food diet. And so when you're not comparing a junk food diet to say, you know, a healthier diet, I think some of the benefits wear off. And there's, there's a, there's a number. So there, in fact, there's a interesting study I just looked at today. It's called fiber uh, colorectal can cancer, I think, or colorectal disease, separating fantasy from, from reality or something like that. And it goes through a lot of these things and saying the data is just not that strong that it really protects against these things. So I think there's a lot of 
sort of, you know, this belief that uh, 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 Burkett, Dennis Burkett, you know, back in Africa was discovering that these people, I think in Uganda or somewhere were eating a higher fiber diet. And that's why all their health was better. And it was like, they weren't eating sugar. They weren't eating garbage, you know? And so it's one of those things where you don't know if, uh, if that's, that's the case or not. Like, you know, the one thing about medicine and science is very complicated. And so it's been made actually. So most, of us can't really understand it. So, you know, that's, there's the, the, the experts know the answer. And so they make our recommendations and then we live by them. Um, what's your thoughts on healthy people getting cancer? Why do healthy people get, you know, they, they look healthy and, and they're, they're exercising and eating a healthy diet. What's going well, on? I mean, gosh, that's a, that's a really that's a really complicated question. I mean, the easy, easy, easy answer if you look at the, the common risk factors for cancer: obesity, visceral fat, uh, hyperinsulinemia, diabetes, chronic inflammation, all those things. I mean, some of the you know some of these people that are quote unquote healthy, you know, maybe they they appear healthy, and and you know, I I hate to sort of because I think appearances are important. I think having a physique that is lean, athletic, generally confers. Uh, an advantage to people, but yeah, I mean, there's certainly some people that will be in that category get cancer. I think they're probably in the minority. Uh, you know, if you listen to guys like Thomas Seyfried, who thinks that cancer is quote unquote, a metabolic a mitochondrial metabolic disease. And it may be, it may be that their diet is leading to that. And maybe, you know, maybe they're on it and you have to look at what their diet is perhaps and look at some of the other habits, but uh, you know, that, that obviously that cancer clearly has a number of factors that, that affect it. I think probably, uh, I think diet is probably a big one, though. Well, I, you know, my, my suspicion, and I, I've uh, interviewed and talked to uh, Thomas Seifert, read his book, and I think that ultimately that probably is the single leading factor for almost all cancers. But, you know, it's, it's because we make it, it so scientifically complicated uh, that most of us can't really un understand it very well. What's your thoughts about fat versus food? as, as, and maybe this leads to the same, you know, cause of diabetes. My, my sister died of diabetes, my best friend, healthy doctor at 52 died of cancer. And it sort of led me really to dig deep into the understanding that maybe fat has nothing to do with disease, but it's strictly the food, which is ultimately the real poisons because the foods we're eating are meant for grazing animals uh, rather than hunting animals, which we're, we really are. Well, I mean, I certainly I, I would agree with that sentiment that, you know, we're not really designed to be grain eaters. I mean, that's not part of our evolution. And, you know, some people sort of don't sort of believe in evolutionary model exists and think it's, you know, it's made up. And I, I tend to believe that. And I think there's pretty strong evidence of what we did for most of our existence as a human species. Now, remember, humans go back farther than Homo sapiens. We go back 2.8, 3.4 million years, depending on what you, what you, what you think humans started at. But so clearly we were eating a lot of meat and a lot of, you know, meat fat that came with that throughout the years. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, the, the sort of the development of agriculture kind of out of maybe out of necessity, that certainly allowed for civilization to bloom because we could be located, geolocated in one area. We didn't have to be nomadic anymore. Uh, came with a cost and the cost was to individual health. And we know that, for instance, our brains shrunk 150 cc's about 10 percent of our brain volume was lost now some people argue it's lower quality nutrition some people say it's the, no longer the need to think as much you know we kind of outsource our brain to the community and we're seeing that even more with the, with the smartphones right you don't even can't even figure out how to add right. anymore people can't do basic arithmetic without pulling out their phone and so 
Um, some people think maybe brain size was, was lost. We, lost we, we, we certainly got smaller in stature. Our dental health got worse. Our bones got weaker. All those things. But I think, you know, I don't want to say fat gets a complete unlimited pass because there's different types of fat. You know, some, you know it's not just mono, poly, and, and uh, saturated fat, but there's different subtypes. You know, with, with among the saturated fats, there's, you know, the short, medium, long chains and the, you know, the oleics and steric acids and palmitic acids. And it's not necessarily the fat we ingest, but it's the fat that populates our bloodstream that might have an impact. And I know a lot of the plant-based advocates will say, well, diabetes is because fat is clogging up the cellular mechanisms and causing the insulin receptors and signaling molecules not to work well. And it's due to ceramide accumulation. And that's all due to saturated fat in the blood and particularly palmitic acid, which is, there's some truth to that. But the problem is palmitic and palmitic fat that circulates in the blood is largely made by our liver and is it's made in response to usually overconsumption of food, often calories, often fructose. And so you're just turning you through uh, de novo lipogenesis. You're just turning these carbohydrates into fat that flo floats in the blood. And then that goes and clogs up the machinery. And so they kind of leave that step out. They kind of, they, they kind of, because Jeff Volek in 2013 showed that eating saturated fat was not correlated with circulating fat, saturated fat in your blood. In fact, it was even less, which I thought was kind of an interesting study. Um, that, that, but to say, I think, you know, when you said we're not designed to eat grains, I don't know that we're designed to eat concentrated fats either. So these, you know, on the ketogenic diet, it was popular to eat sticks of butter and chug heavy cream and just unlimited fat. And I don't think that's right either. I think, you know, when we look at what's natural, what, you know, if, if I'm eating a, you know, the closest thing to a, to a mammoth these days, probably a ribeye steak, it's got a certain, you know, uh, fat to protein ratio and, and, and beef, for instance, is interesting because it's got 50, 50 some thousand different individual nutrients. It's just not a few vitamins and minerals and protein and fat. There's 50,000 wow. different compounds in there that all have impacts on our nutrition, most of which we don't know what they are. I mean, some of them we're starting to look at like creatine, carnitine, carnosine, answering, taurine, those things, you know, we're starting to understand, you know, vitamin, you know, D3 and K2 and some of these things that we're seeing in animal products, we're starting to tease that out. But um, so I think eating foods is close to their natural form, uh, and not hyper concentrating. It's like the protein powders. I mean, I think the protein powders are very similar in effect to like flours and sugars. We're not designed to eat, designed to eat powders in my view. I mean, where do you think in nature you could turn something into powder? I mean, you just can't. I mean, you, you might have to chew for like 12 hours to powderize something. Never, right. Right. And so you think about how when that hits our digestive tract, the surface area is so incredibly increased and it just bypasses the this very temporal digestive process where you've got, you know, the incretin hormones, GIP up in the upper intestines and GLP in the lower intestines, GLP-1, GLP-2 in the lower intestines. And that, see, that, that entire temporal sequential process is just disrupted because it's just rapid absorption of all these nutrients that we would have never been exposed to before. So, Right. So what, what, was, what likely was the ratio of fat and we say meat, meat is made yeah. up of fat and protein. I mean, amino right. acids. I mean, we're right. really given a very basics, but likely when we were eating and killing an animal and eating it, however many thousands of years ago, you know, we weren't saying, let me have the tenderloin or let me have the fat, you know, which right. piece do you want, right? What, so what do you think was or is and should be the optimal sort of ratio of the white stuff to the red stuff? Right, right. Well, I mean, and, and I think there's a little bit of nuance. And I think some people are going to have a little different experience with that. I think men and women might even have a different different ratio that's ideal for them. But if we look at it, and you look at guys like Mickey Bendor and uh, Ronnie Bark out of Tel Aviv, and they've done some extensive research on human, uh, you know, human hunting, human, uh, you know, evolution and how the, actually homo, homo sapiens 
theoretically evolved and they did a really nice paper on uh uh you know this overall what we were eating and they looked at everything fossil records isotope studies uh you know uh, human physiology bio you know bio uh, genomics everything they could look at and they came to the conclusion that humans were heavily carnivorous for sure uh, for much of much of our early up, up uh, sort of process and then later as these big megafaunal animals the mammoths the mastodons the rhinoceroses the you know, the, the giant oryx and things that we were eating pretty much whenever we wanted. And the evidence is pretty strong that we could kill them with without much difficulty because they didn't run away. They weren't scared of us and they were everywhere. And so uh, I think we had this sort of all you can eat elephant buffet. And I know it sounds kind of crazy, but I think that's kind of what we did. And there was, you know, evidence like the Gervetian mammoth hunters in Central Europe doing this. And so we know that the larger the animal is that they tend to have a carry a higher percentage of fat. And so I think that's what we had to choose from. So I think probably... Um, we were eating a higher fat to protein ratio than what we see a lot in the grocery store these days, you know, with the exception, uh, you know, ribeye steak, which by calorie 60, 70% fat typically, and 30, 40% protein, depending on how marbled it is. I think that's probably where most people sort of find themselves to be comfortable at, at sort of maintenance at rest. You know, I think if you want to be leaner then then you may remove a little bit of that but uh, i think in most people again i don't know that you have to gorge on fat but you have to have an adequate amount of fat and i think there's some proposal that like 35 percent protein is a theoretical upper limit for protein consumption although i don't know that ratios make sense it's probably an absolute amount that's probably more in line with uh with, with what we should be doing and uh so somewhere in that thing i see people be successful from anywhere from you know I, I don't really see too many people long-term having success below 50% of their calories coming from fat. Um, I see people going as high as 80 and 85% mm -hmm. doing okay. So somewhere in there, and I think it varies per person. And again, it depends on where you're at from your weight loss journey and where you're at from a disease state. I mean, essentially before insulin um, and, and, and uh, Dilantin for seizures, both diabetes and seizures were treated with a ketogenic diet we know that and uh, the pharmaceutical drive of uh, uh disease drugs and uh and then subsequently you get other diseases and side effects from the drugs which is really the push of the world world today uh how do you coach and counsel people uh in in sort of starting this this uh, uh journey to carnivore uh, yeah, well, I mean, I think most people commonly share some problems with with food. I mean, they have kind of a bad relationship with nutrition in general. And so most of them, most of them want to lose weight. Uh, not all of them. Some of them want to bulk up and get strong. I take care of a lot of athletes. Um, but for the most person, someone's dealing with disease and obesity. We just have to sort of say, well, let's fix our relationship with the food we're eating. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not that they can't from time to time have discipline and, and get on a diet and lose weight. But they always fall back into this this really destructive eating pattern. And so I think that's step one. You have to sort of address that. And I just tell people, let's get highly nutritious food in you. Let's get as much as you care to eat so that you don't not, you know, people ask me, well, how much should I eat? And I say, Hey, just eat enough. So you don't want a cupcake or whatever, you know, whatever your trigger food or trigger foods are. And I think that's, that's initially how I approach, approach it with most people. And then from there, you know, obviously if someone's on a lot of medications, you need to involve your healthcare provider to help you taper off because if you're a diabetic, you're probably going to be reducing your insulin. You're probably going to come if you're still on a sulfonylurea, which hopefully not too many people are still taking those, but those things will have to come off. Uh, you know, we see a lot of people with blood pressure meds. They have to reduce their blood pressure meds relatively quickly. Otherwise, they end up with hypotension and then they, you know, 
get wobbly and fall down. We don't want that either. And, you know, and, you know, the, uh, anti, uh, uh, anxiety and depression meds. A lot of people are able to, to taper those down. So I think involving, if you're on a lot of meds, involve your physician, please don't just do this because you can, there are potential scenarios where things get problematic. And so those are things we talk about. Um, I, you know, I'm a fan of protein. I like people getting an adequate amount of protein. I think our, our dietary guidelines under, under recommend protein. I think, I don't believe it kills you. I don't think it makes you age. I think there's some caveats to that. I think you shouldn't just mindlessly drink protein powder and sit on the couch. I think you should put that protein to work you should be doing some sort of activity. Now, not everybody can do that right away. I mean, a lot of people, I mean, they're hurting. And I, you know, to tell people you got to spend an hour in the gym and they're like, I don't even want to walk down the street because my knees hurt too bad. It's not fun for them. So you have to kind of sort of say, okay, let's fix your diet likely. And this is the neat thing for me as an orthopedic surgeon. I saw so many people that had fairly severe arthritic or joint pain or tendonitis. It just goes away on diet, which is just amazing. And you're like, and then they're like, well, I don't hurt anymore. Well then good. Now you can go, now you can go for a walk and now you can start to build up. And, and so, I mean, there's a, like I said, there's a progression and obviously depending upon the unique situation, there's some unique things, but in general, it's like fix your relationship with food, eat plenty of food and enjoy it. Don't just sit there down to a plain old bowl of ground beef with no seasoning and, and you know, and sit and think you're going to do that. I wouldn't do that. I mean, I'd be like, you're crazy, man. I'm not doing that. So give me some, give me, you know, do some variety, enjoy it. You know, mm-hmm. you might have to remove some things later if you're, if you're dealing with something particularly, recalcitrant or you like some weird autoimmune disease or something like that. But in the beginning, it's just like, let's just get used to not eating the the starches and the, the other plant-based foods that you're so accustomed to eating and just kind of get used to filling sure. up on these animal foods. And, and, you know, and then you go from there. What, what about uh, fish? Uh, any, yeah, it's, uh, I have my opinions on fish. Well, tell me what you're thinking about fish versus land animals. And, yeah. and then what are the variety do you throw in there related to the uh, animal? Uh, uh, right. Well, I, I mean, I will tell you, you know, you, I can tell you my thoughts on that and I'll tell you what I actually eat. So what I actually eat is about 99% red meat. <laughs> I mean, that's what I eat every day. I mean, I'll, sometimes I'll throw an egg, but I will have fish occasionally. I, I don't know that I just get the, whatever the oomph is, a visceral <clears throat> enjoyment from fish. I mean, I have it. I don't think it's, I don't think generally it's bad. I mean, some people could say there, you know, there's mercury and some other issues around fish, but I'm not so concerned about that as a major concern. I think, again, I think about just, you know, and, and I, I talk about this in the book and I still think it makes sense because I'm talking about stuff that happened arguably a million and a half years ago. If you and I were out hunting and we had a spear, which is what we had, how much time would it take you to go kill an elephant and get 3,000 or 3 million calories? And how much time would it take you to chase around birds or even chase fish? I mean, you, it's just not very time efficient. So I think, and I think when we're talking about growing and this is debatable because a lot of people see, you know, the coastal migrations and the access to fatty fish. And that's how our brain, brain, our, our brains grew. But I think, you know, um, gosh, you can get, you can certainly get omega threes from, from, from animals, both grass fed and grain finished. I mean, there's, there's, you don't need a ton of that quite honestly. And I think that uh, there's nothing wrong with fish in the diet. I, I have not seen anybody successfully do a fully pescatarian carnivore diet. I just haven't seen that happen. I think for some reason, the ruminant meat seems to be at least a key player for most people. I know there's, I mean, arguably there's, I mean, even I've got even people in India doing it and they're, they're using fish and eggs and chicken and they're usually putting in some lamb or something like that or goat or something like that because it's not, those things aren't prohibited for them. And how about number of meals and fasting? You want to talk a little bit about that and share your thoughts and ideas? Yeah, I think that, uh, again, there's a, there, there's a kind of a belief that humans fasted and that was natural. And, you know, you, you certainly can see it in the record, you know, we just, got to 
for, for the uh, members of the Muslim community that's got finished through Ramadan. I was in Dubai for Ramadan and people said, don't go to Dubai during Ramadan. But it was fine. There was no big deal. I didn't have to fast at all while I was there. But I think one, I think that clearly in my view, humans, at least pre prehistorical humans probably did not eat very frequently. And I think the reason for that is, you know, if you're nomadic, I mean, and, and again, I'm going to assume they were cooking in many cases. Maybe they weren't, but I think mostly they were. It's a lot of work to prepare a meal when you're out in the wilderness and you got to build a campfire. And so I think they probably ate maybe once a day, maybe twice a day at most, uh, maybe a morning meal. And then, and then when they walk, but I don't know. I mean, you can't say for sure, but I mean, I know with this diet, I just naturally am not hungry for much of the day. I mean, I, I, I would say for 90% of the time I've been doing this, I eat two meals a day. And that, and that's probably the majority of what I see anecdotally. And I don't really care what people eat. I tell them eat when you're hungry. And usually after a while, when they're hungry is twice a day. It's hard to do once and once a day on this, on this diet for many people, just because of the, you know, trying to eat a full day's worth of calories through meat in one meal for most people is challenging. Um, if you need 3000 calories a day to get through the thing, that's three pounds of meat, basically. Most people can't sit down there and do that. I can, and I've done it many times. I mean, I've done five or six pounds in one sitting, which is kind of ridiculous. Sure. But, but I, but I don't even like doing that. I mean, I, I know after about two pounds of meat, I'm like, I'm good, I'm full, and and I don't want any more, and that's a good meal for me. But if I have to stuff myself to eat another meal, then I'm just not enjoying the food. I think that fasting, like I said, I think the problem we have today is the constant eating. You know, the average American starts eating at 7 a.m. and doesn't stop eating until 10 p.m. and they're just constantly eating 16 hours a day that's clearly not what we're supposed to be doing and i think the food choices we're making drive that hunger you know when you're constantly eating the snack foods it provides very little nutrition it provides some calories and it doesn't provide much satiety so you're constantly just little little glucose and insulin you know you know ping pong going back and forth so you continue to have to deal with that and so i think for some people particularly people struggling with obesity or other sort of satiety recognition issues Fasting can be helpful, you know, putting a window, putting an eating window there is, is a nice external crutch that helps you. Um, I think diet, a good diet will do that naturally and maybe you don't need to do that. But I think in the beginning, I don't have a problem with that. I think, you know, people doing, you know, longer fasting very frequently where they're doing, you know, three day fast every week and stuff like that. I think there are some problems with that. Um, potentially mm -hmm. you can mitigate those through getting adequate protein and doing strength training while you're doing it so you don't lose uh, too much lean mass because it's not just about weight loss as you know it's about losing when you lose weight you want to maintain as much lean mass as you can you're not going to land it you're not going to maintain it all uh but you know you can mitigate that through uh some smart uh, strategies tell us a little bit about uh exercise regimens that you you recommend uh um, cardiac, cardiac, uh, uh, cardio versus strength training versus resistance or or just going for a walk um, I think all of the above, quite honestly. I mean, I think that, uh, I think you are remiss not doing strength training, particularly as we get older and, and it doesn't matter if you're male, female, it doesn't matter what age you are. Strength is going to protect you. I mean, the correlations with strength and longevity, strength and, you know, protection from cardiovascular disease, cancer, neurodegenerative diseases, diabetes, on and on. They're just, they're all over the place. So it, it makes sense to be strong. You don't have to be Mr. Olympian, a super giant bodybuilder. You just need to be in the top quartile of your age cohort it's going to be the best protection and that's not very hard i mean unfortunately the top quartile is not a very high bar these days so just doing regular strength training is important i think the cardiovascular side is also equally important and i think there's a couple ways to get there i'm a big fan of you know interval training sprint training i do that it's got done running 400 400 meter sprints today but um 
I think doing that to some degree is very effective, but I also the, the long steady state stuff. I mean, I just went, I went for literally just before I got here, I took my dogs for, for about a 45 minute walk and I had a 50 pound weight vest. I was just walking around with the weight vest on. So I think all of the above can be effective and we should do as many of those as possible. Now, obviously there's time constraints. You don't need to spend two hours a day. You can get some of this done very, very effectively. I mean, I think the data on, you know, muscle hypertrophy, which I think is important. And, you know, it shows that with, you know, 10 sets of, of a particular body part, you know, maybe it's chest and arms and you're doing 10 sets of push-up per week, you know, provided you're going close to failure, near failure, close to failure, that's adequate. That's sufficient to, to build muscle. And so you don't have to, you know, you can get that done. You know, how long does it take you to do one set of push-ups to failure? For most people, it's a minute, you know, and so you, you figure it's 10 minutes a week. It's about um, 10. Yeah, whatever, whatever it may be, you know, once you get better, hopefully you go, you go a little longer, but yeah, it's something like that. Uh, encouraging people to just get, get up and out and move your body. It's so critical, but, but uh, you know, getting, getting active uh, with, with yoga, with, with, uh, you know, I just remember just calisthenics, you know, we did a half an hour of calisthenics, which was just utilizing our own body with, without any, you know, any other resistant uh, tools needed. Uh, um, I thought was kind of always, Pretty good, which I tend to work towards more. I'm getting uh, closer to the 70 uh, uh, age group. Sure. Yeah, but I mean, you know, like I said, you just you know, you, you, I think particularly as you get older, the t more the more you shouldn't take any really much any time off at all. I mean, it's just it's just something that I've discovered. If I take more than a day or two off, it's like you got to stay after this stuff. And and I think you know um, uh, progress. I mean, you know, if you're depending where you're starting, you know, it's, it's one of those things you can always find something, some way to measure progress, whether it's number of repetitions, how long it took you to do something, how much weight you're using, how fast you could do something. So many ways to progress and just keep it, make, make it fun. And you got to You got to enjoy it. But th the point I made earlier, if you're in pain and you hurt and you've got injuries, I mean, you don't want to push through that stuff necessarily fix the diet, give diet a chance to start working. Cause I, I, I can tell you, and, and, and Rob, you can probably confirm Diet impacts your joint health and, and how you feel. And if you fix your diet, those pain, you know, you because you know it's not fun to go out and work out when your back's hurting all the time. It's like right. every time I move my backers, if that stops, it removes a huge roadblock in front of your way. And so you get into this sort of, you know, instead of this negative feedback loop, you get into this positive feedback loop where you feel better, you start exercising a little bit, you start looking better, and then it, you just it just continues to progress. And, and then you become some crazy evangelist and, and everyone's going to share. <laughs> and, and, and we're sharing it all over the world because we know how good it feels. Uh, right. I've been doing carnivore over 10 years and I used to have every injury and, and, and every disease and it all goes away, including lower back problems go away, which I think it's all related to the bowels. And, you know, when you remove, remove the inflammation from the bowels, you actually remove the inflammation from the rest of the body, which is yeah, pretty it's, amazing. It's, I think there's, a, it's, there's multifactorial things when it comes to joints. So I do think that, you know, our gut function, our, our gut inflammation, gut permeability, gut dysbiosis, all that plays a role clearly. Uh, also, in, interestingly, I mean, there was a nice study out of the university, I think it was University of Alabama where they looked at, I think it was 2019. They looked at, you know, high insulin levels and, you know, we shouldn't have super high insulin levels all the time and diet impacts that high insulin levels stimulate these things called uh, uh, fibroblast like synovial sites, which are, you know, the synovial cells are ones that line the joints and squirt out the synovial fluid that lubricates our joints. And when they are exposed to high levels of insulin chronically, they start to produce these inflammatory cytokines, which then go on to actually damage the joint and lead to arthritis. And so, again, these things, uh, you know, 
I think arthritis in a lot of cases is just a consequence of metabolic disease in many cases. You know, there's trauma, of course, we right. get post-traumatic right. arthritis, but I mean, the typical just, I'm getting older, my joints are wearing out. It's not so much because you're walking and using them. It's because your body's inflamed and carrying all this extra fat around this extra adipose tissue. Also, we know about the inflammatory cytokines those produce. So you well, have the systemic, you're hitting it from all angles for sure. Yeah, no, it is quite amazing. And you know, my, my, my basic theory is we're, we're our real trouble is hyperglycemia. And, and because of a high plant-based diet, which ultimately fuels the circulation with glucose 24 seven, 365, since the day you're born to the day you die pretty much because our bowels are always full of carbohydrates. They're, they're never empty. So if you fast overnight or even for a day, because you're eating a complex carbohydrate diet, especially fiber, your GI tract is simply full of digesting carbs all day, all night from the day you're born. And nowadays, you know, now we're seeing the, the, the uh, uh, baby formula uh, 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 is, is shortage uh, because we're eating a plant-based uh, baby formula, which, which, you know, just counter to everything uh, we should be doing, which is breast milk for babies and then basically animal uh, uh, products for everything beyond that. Uh, of, of most sequence, most uh, frequency. But um, I've been talking a lot about the glycobiome and how we don't know very much about the glycobiome and glycobiology, which I think is more important than the microbiome and everything else. But, you know, some things that uh, I also think insulin resistance is untrue and glucose is never the energy for the mitochondria. Uh, but it's a hard one to understand because we know no one has no fat or uh, uh, fatty acids in their bloodstream and circulation ever. And I'm not sure why the mitochondria would use glucose and then switch over to acetyl-CoA from a fatty acid. But, um, you know, that's a, that's a hard thing for so many of us. Um, you know, we're waiting for the scientists to give us the answer, but we know that the ancient um, optimal the nutrition, or I think you what you use um, a species uh, specific is a species yeah, species 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 appropriate i mean you know i think i said you know i mean there was two million years where they had a chance to figure this stuff out and they kind of trial and error figured it out i mean i i just imagine there was a point where like somebody was maybe the plant test tester in the tribe maybe they didn't like the guy and said hey er, hey er, go try this and you know if he lived great if he didn't but yeah i mean i think we we have we evolved you know i mean like i said if you look at human evolution i mean there were there were uh, hominid species uh, that tried the vegetarian and vegan route, and they they went extinct. I mean, you know, you look at Paranthropus uh, robustus and Boisei, both of those they they were they were around for a while, and then they just went extinct. They, the climate and the environment didn't did not tolerate uh, uh, their their presence because they were just there was no more. They couldn't survive there. I always wonder why a five wagyu steak, which is the fattiest steak you can buy, is the most expensive. And it's basically because it's the master's meal. And the masters uh, feed the masses uh, mush, which makes us meek because we're addicted to plant products uh, because they're smoked, uh, drank, injected, uh, but mostly eaten, which ultimately makes us feel good. Uh, plus the plants come with the toxins and the hallucinogenics that make us want them more because they're addictive. Uh, and, and since 
the majority of actual uh, carbohydrates and, and glycans are not even sweet, yet they all convert to a sugar in our bloodstream, which most of us don't even know that. And But I was reading a paper on the effects of poisonous range plants on abortions and livestock. But basically, and there's a lot of evidence, and the United States Department of Agriculture has a great journal on plant poisoning for livestock, because livestock are much more valuable than human stock um, in, in, in the sense of we sell meat and make money, but humans, when they're sick, we make money on their sickness, which is not, I'm not saying it's, it's a conspiracy, but, but it's, it's such an interesting concept and idea. That's why I say meat makes us masters and mush makes us meek, essentially. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And I mean, I deal in the fertility world. And my belief is the majority of miscarriages um, and, and stillbirths and also infertility is strictly all the same problem that happens in the livestock world. It's plant toxins and, and, and other issues in that particular disease process. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, when you look at the world of animal nutrition, particularly you know, food animals, I mean, the nutrition science behind that is so incredibly robust. And I mean, because, I mean, I mean, literally, I mean, they, they can kill the, they kill them at the end. I mean, they can, you can't do that ethically with humans and you can't control, and they control every aspect. So they can really look at exactly how things are affected and they can monitor them with a human. You can't do those studies, it's just unethical. And so we're kind of left to guess. We're like, well, hopefully our grandparents picked up. <laughs> You know, and now it's like hopefully these companies have their our best interest in mind with their you know with their uh, Reese's peanut butter flavored cereal, right? I mean, it's just you know it's obviously clearly garbage done for profit motive, and uh, I mean I'm being uh, you know you know clearly they don't have our interest in mind, but it's it, it is it's interesting to see that, and I wouldn't I mean I'm I I clearly I mean obviously you 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 deal with women's fertility much more than I do, but I, I even from my perspective I see women with PCOS with different dysmenorrheas, you know, with different, you know, with, with uh, 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 perimenopausal syndrome, you know, infertility get better when you change your diet. I mean, they routinely say that. Well, the, 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 uh, let's see the, um, the birth control pills made from plant products and the abortion pill is made from plant products essentially. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of no wonder that if we're eating a high plant-based low animal fat diet, you know, we're so diseased in, in, in this, in this process. What are your thoughts on, uh, alcohol? Uh, I don't think alcohol is a health food. I mean, I think it's, you know, I, I don't, you know, I, I don't think that you can drink it in moderation. It's going to extend your life, which some earlier studies suggest. Um, I get why people do it for sure. I mean, you know, and, and I, to be truly transparent, I have a glass of wine occasionally, not very often, but I mean, once in a while I will. Uh, but I don't go to it thinking, oh, I'm going to have this because it's heart healthy because it's red wine. I just think you just have to sort of, I mean, and there's clearly people that, that overconsume that for sure. And so I, 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 just, I just don't have a much a great desire to do that personally. People ask me about how does it affect the diet, and I will say this is an interesting fact that I think mm -hmm. is interesting. We do know that saturated fat has a protective effect against the damage that ethanol does on the liver. It's done both. It's been shown both in animals and in human studies. So if you're going to drink alcohol, have a steak with it, you know, I mean, I think I can say that, but again, I'm not encouraging people to drink. You know, I've always thought about the, 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 the statement uh, publish or perish. 
So ultimately, all science is just a publication of a belief system and actually may not be true. Um, and, I, and that's one of the challenges with most published science that I think is so difficult. And um, I recently found a book by a doctor, James Henry Salisbury. And I, I did not know uh, that um, Salisbury's mistake yeah, yeah. was um, described by a Dr. Salisbury. Right, yeah. Uh, Mid-1800s, yeah, right, yeah. He graduated Albany Med in 1850. He was a chemist and a microscopist. But he noticed that his men in the Civil War were dying of dysentery. He gave them steak and coffee. They all got better. He then did experiments on them where, I mean, these were, these are well, well uh, written documented experiments where he fed them, he fed them the, the beans and, and uh, the, the, the cereals and the, and the, and the hard tack, they called it, which is crackers. And many of our patients, when they get nausea and vomiting early pregnancy, they're told to eat crackers, which right. I believe are deadly for us. But, but um, you know, the, the, the scientific data is there for everything we're talking about. You know, it's it's there's only one scientific experiment that needs to be studied, and that's the human being that's suffering and needs to do it themselves, uh, which is really quite remarkable uh, that we're, you know, we're we're here not arguing a point. We're sharing a success of life. And uh, as carnivore, it is quite amazing to uh, tell me a little bit, Sean, on where uh, Rivera Health uh, and how people can find you and what things they can, uh, you know, gain by going to Rivera Health and uh, what type of people maybe are there that can help them on their journey. Yeah, I just want to add, you know, you mentioned James Salisbury, but prior to that, there's a guy named John Rollo, who was a Scottish surgeon, you may know as well. And he's also in the, like, this is in the early, late, late 1700s. Same thing, all meat diets, fixing diabetes. This goes back a long time. And then, of course, which, which I think, you know, if you look at the Mongols and you look at the Vikings, right. these are the two groups that pretty much ruled the world. Right. And uh, we're all related to both of those. And so ultimately they were they were hunters and they were not grazing, nor are they agriculturalists. Yeah, it's kind of, it's kind of interesting. I went to Iceland, you know, several years ago to talk about this carnivore diet. And I wasn't received as a, as a crazy person because they're like hey we live on a frozen island in the middle of the north atlantic <laughs> you know and it's kind of like uh you know there's not much mangoes growing around out here they got you know they got some fish and they got a few animals grazing so but you know with your point about you know your question about R rivero so yeah rivero is a company that we we started uh you know and uh we started out as a company called meter x and we've kind of evolved to this R rivero where our you know it's kind of in the name rivero our goal is to reverse disease and our goal is to get people off medications as opposed to like I talked about disease maintenance. So this is by any and all means necessary. You know, how are we going to get you off your disease? How are we going to fix you? It's going to be diet. It's going to be lifestyle. It's going to be exercise. It's going to be having physicians that uh, are aligned philosophically to understand that our job is not to, you know, fill out, you know, the, the coding stuff. It's where you want these people better. We've got coaches and support communities and, we're so some of this is still being developed. You know, I have to say we just raised five million dollars to develop a lot of this stuff. We do have a carnivore community, which is now found at carnivore.diet. We've kind of separated that off, and that is what we've been doing up to this point. So we've got people that can coach you on carnivore. I provide consultations. I spend uh, every day, an hour every single morning, every, seven days a week, 365 days a year, unless I'm on a plane somewhere, 
just with, with conference with people, anybody who wants to jump in there as part of the community can ask me questions and we talk about things and we, you know, shared success stories and we talk about struggles and that type of stuff. We've got all kinds of resources, you know, it's all the, all the literature, we, we've got literally thousands of articles of scientific research. We've got uh, links to where you can find a rancher. You know, we've got discounts on meat. We've got um, uh, just, just all kinds of recipes, all this stuff there. So that's, what's over there. I'm there every day. And then of course my social media stuff where I kind of do goofy stuff, but it's, you know, it's kind of just try to get the message out, kind of some entertaining, entertaining stuff. <laughs> And I really enjoyed it. I was looking at it and uh, I was noticing you had some links to some uh, carnivore friendly uh, uh, docs. And, and right, that's right. what, how, how, what are your thoughts on how we inspire uh, more clinicians to sort of, I mean, I've, I've been reported to my state medical board and I've also been told by the medical school that I teach at that I can't talk about this. And this was from a doctor who had no legs from diabetes amputations. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, I mean, I think part of that, like I said, I think the system is broken and I think, you know, what we're doing is, you know, we're like, you know, like I said, if you don't like the rules of the game, you know, make your own game or something like that. So sometimes you have to step out there and a lot of physicians are, you know, they're leaving employed care. They're going into direct primary care and they're just kind of like, I'm going to do my own thing. And I think patients are going to fall. I think we just have to continue to, to hold the line and just, just in, even in spite of the fact that we're being chastised and, and, you know, wrist slap and some people, you know, some people have to change careers in some cases. It's unfortunate, but I think the answer is not just to, to sort of concede and just give up because I think at the end of the day, you know, I just, I, you know, I talk about, you know, I, I just put a little funny thing on Instagram. It was like this kid eating these bug burger, you know, bug soup and asking mommy, why did I have to, why do I have to keep eating bug soup every day? And he says, well, because your grandfather was a coward. And I think that's where we're at. We're the grandpas, you know, and, you know. Uh, I'm not a, I don't know if you're a grandfather. I'm not yet. I got kids, but I'm not a grandpa yet. But I mean, at some point I will be, and it'll be on me to uh, do the right thing. That's going to affect my kids and my grandchildren and, and you know, hopefully and, and on and on and on. So, yeah, I mean, it's tough, but, but I think we're starting to, to make a difference. I mean, I, I clearly, we are. I mean, if you look at the, like the Google trends, it's showing the carnivore diet has just continues to rise. And, you know, I mean, despite all the people saying it's going to go out of fashion and the reason is because, it works. I mean, it's just, it just, it works and it works for so many people and you can't hide that. You can't hide the truth forever. And so I think it's, uh, unfortunately some of us, and I've taken my share of arrows. I mean, I've stood up there and gotten a lot of, you know, rocks and eggs thrown at me sort of metaphorically, but yeah, I'm still here. And, you know, like I said, you know, it's, you know, there's only so much they can do to you, I suppose. Well, well the, you know, it's such an inspiration to see so many people in this space. And you're right, you know, carnivore is like keto, 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 and now it's carnivore, carnivore. Uh, but it's really sharing something that's so radically amazing. Um, I've seen too many people um, have so many medical problems. I suffered, and I've seen them all go away in like two to four weeks, yeah. even though you are still obese. And I say the obesity is not the cause of disease. It's the it's what's in the bowels, which ultimately is mostly uh, uh, fermenting fiber, which is alcohol producing, which is deadly. Uh, I say fiber is the deadliest thing we can consume at any dietary habits. And uh, a plant-based diet, which is a low glycemic index, which is deadlier than a high glycemic index, which is radical concepts. But until we beat this thing to bits, because I'm seeing too many healthy people get cancer and infertility and, and every other disease we know 
even though they have the genetic markers, I'm seeing people that are carnivore and everything goes away. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's, it's so tell us, tell everyone, and really, Sean, uh, Dr. Sean Baker, uh, just a, a superstar in the carnivore health and wellness space. Uh, tell us where uh, all of uh, your fans uh, and, and many other, we keep on sharing, where can they find you? Yeah. So again, obviously Rivero.com. I'm there every single day or carnivore.diet. So if you want to directly interact with me on a zoom call, I'm there every day. Uh, my social media is, uh, so Instagram, I'm Sean, S H A W N Baker, B A K E R one nine six seven. Um, I usually put a couple posts up a day. There's some, some of it's goofy. You know, again, the goofy stuff is just for entertainment purposes only. Don't take it too seriously, but it provides, you know, something to get people at least engaged. I'm on Twitter at S Baker MD. I'm on YouTube at Sean Baker MD. I'm on even on TikTok at Sean Baker MD. And I just wanted to say, you know, because I thought of something that I thought was a good analogy. You talk about keto and keto and then carnivore. I think keto is about the physiology. You know, it's a physiology thing, but carnivore is really about the food. And I think it's right. You know, and, and ultimately you're right. It's the food dummy. You know, it's kind of like, you know, it's, 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 it's that. And you know, if it's our gut, you know, our gut is the largest interface we have with the environment. I mean, our, most of our you know, immune system is in our gut. This is how we interact with our, our skin keeps stuff out, right? Our skin is designed to keep everything out. Our gut is designed to absorb things. And when we put the wrong things in there, there's a problem, right? Yeah, it, it's, it, Occam's razor said the simple answer is the one. And ultimately, um, uh, the complex scientific studies, I think, are dis disruptive to true human health and wellness. Uh, faith first, um, eat one meal a day, maybe a snack, make it as fatty as can be. And uh, if you're not feeling well and what you're eating, if you're feeling well, it's usually what you're eating and move every single day. That's critical. And, and, and if you're doing it with others in one way or another community, which makes our lives much, much better. So again, uh, uh, to Dr. Sean Baker, uh, find him on Revero Health and, uh, and we'll throw some links out there also to all his really amazing stuff. So uh, thank you to everyone for joining us today. I know we didn't answer all your questions, but I'm going to be on uh, 10 o'clock this uh, uh, 10 o'clock AM on uh, Sunday, every Sunday, 10 AM Eastern time. I'm doing it live. It's fertility, but it's fertile health for everyone. So God bless. And thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Baker. We really appreciate you. Hey, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity. Thanks. Awesome. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Carnivore Conversations hosted by me, Dr. Robert Kiltz. And don't forget to review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening today. Check out drkiltz.com for more and subscribe to our Instagram, YouTube, TikTok, and Facebook for more inspiring content every day. Take care and see you next time.